welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk with experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and more to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps you can take in your effort to shift toward a healthier lifestyle. Dr. Margaret Robinson is a Mi'kmaq scholar and a member of Lenox Island First Nation. She works as an associate professor at Dalhousie University in Mi'kma'ki, where she holds the Tier 2 Canada Research Chair in Reconciliation, Gender, and Identity. Dr. Robinson is two-spirit, bisexual, and queer, and her research examines how culture and identity support well-being. In our conversation, we discuss Dr. Robinson's research into feminism and bisexuality, the work she did in developing a measure for microaggressions and microaffirmations experienced by bisexual women, racism experienced by Indigenous communities and the Canadian healthcare system, navigating veganism as an Indigenous person, and ways to decolonize our food systems. If you enjoy this episode, please consider supporting our show through the link at the bottom of the show notes, or you can donate directly through our website. Do you want to take your plant-based knowledge to the next level? The online plant-based nutrition certificate through open learning and educational support at the University of Guelph has everything you need to know about implementing a sustainable plant-based diet. Each course is just four weeks long and will guide you through essential topics, including nutritional benefits, disease prevention, and environmental impacts. You can also customize your learning with unique courses such as plant-based diets for athletes and implementing a plant-based diet at home. As the first university-level plant-based certificate in Canada, you'll explore current research, learn from leading industry experts, and join a community of like-minded people. Use our exclusive discount code PBC2024 to save 10% on all plant-based nutrition certificate courses. The discount code is valid until December 31st, 2024. Learn more about the certificate program and find the discount code in the description below. Again, that's PBC 2024. Margaret, thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me, Clint. So we always start, of course, with an introduction, a little bit of your biography. Tell me first about where you're from and what your family was like and what your childhood was like when you were growing up. Sure. Uh, So I'm the daughter of uh, James Robinson and Heather McLean. I was born in Halifax in 1973. And at the time, my dad was a uh, local drug dealer. And so the the drug business was getting really violent in the 70s. So uh, he and my mom moved out to the middle of the woods. (laughs) Uh, They moved to Sheet Harbor, Nova Scotia, in the district of Eskigawage. Although I've seen other maps of Mi'kma'ki, and sometimes the district lines are in different places. So in some maps, I'm from Sabaganagadi. Um, but the first map I saw said I was in Skigawage. So that's the district I tend to go with. Um, and so my parents were sort of uh, back to the land hippies. They, um, my mom's family were all Scots and a uh, smattering of Irish folks, but my dad's family were Mi'kmaq. And so it was a, a great experience growing up on the land. We would do crafts together and I got to really develop a relationship with my territory. But we were really poor. Like we lived in a little house that my dad had built. He had learned some uh, skills with carpentry when he was in uh, Dorchester prison. And so he built this little house. Um, And I remember it had a a trap door in the floor where we would let the cats in and out. Um, And then eventually uh, we we built a nicer, better house. And then eventually we uh, got a house through a housing program. But 
I think we were, I know I was like 14 and in junior high when we finally got plumbing and running water and all that, that sort of thing. So my growing up years were kind of like a Laura Ingalls Wilder, if you've ever read those little house in the <laughs> big woods, sort of a uh, little house in the prairie style books. Uh, that was very much my experience. It, it felt like I grew up in the 1800s, even though it was really the 1970s. Um, but we were also in a very small village and uh, that has a bit of a way back feel to it as well because everyone knew each other. Many people were related to each other. And so um, my parents hadn't grown up there. And so we were outsiders almost for, I think, 20 years. <laughs> um, but uh, it was it was a nice experience to to grow up in a, a rural area. And uh, I appreciate it more as an adult than I ever did as a kid. As a kid, you know, I wish there was a movie theater, <laughs> you know, I wished I could walk to my friend's house. But uh, yeah, as an adult, I, I really appreciate the benefits that uh, I have, I think, emotionally, spiritually, and uh, especially in terms of my understanding of what it means to live in a territory as an Indigenous person. That's been really helpful for that. You said your mom was Scottish and your dad was Mi'kmaq. So obviously, like moving away from everything and being closer to them really kind of helped things in terms of how connected you were to them. But I'm curious in terms of like cultural differences, was it, was it as a child, was it clear to you that your dad was from this background, your mom was from that background, or was it kind of synthesized together when you were growing up? Or did you even think about it that way? So we, mom's family wasn't in the picture. Uh, she, by the time I was born, she was estranged from all of her relations. And so we didn't know anyone on her side of the family. And every story from that side of the family was like horrific and negative. And so it was kind of like this big area that she just didn't want to talk about in her life. And so I knew she had some sisters. I knew there she had had a brother who had died. He'd been um, shot accidentally, and when he was young, and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of her family-related stories were were quite emotional and distressing for her. And so they just weren't in our p picture as a part of our family. So my dad had a big extended family of Mi'kmaq people, and so our that was really my my family growing up, um, and my mom kind of slotted into that. And so I, although I knew we were Scottish on her side and she was very much into being part of Clan McLean and loved the Tartans and uh, all that sort of uh, Kaylee sort of uh, stuff that they were really promoting as part of Nova Scotia heritage in that era. So I did feel connected to that a little bit. Uh, I remember when Braveheart came out, mom took us to see it um, and my brother got sort of rah-rah Scottish for a while. Um, but then she said, you know, oh, well, your Scottish ancestors were on the other side of that conflict. So don't get too excited about it. We weren't on the good guys in that movie. Um, so like it uh, eventually I did hire a genealogist uh, to find out more about my mother's ancestry. Uh, and that was really exciting and useful because uh, I got to see patterns in uh, some of those folks and all strangers to me, just names on a page. But um, one of them was, for instance, a photographer, one of the first photographers in Newfoundland who owned a, a photography studio in St. John's. And my mom had worked as a photographer uh, when she was younger. She had worked for the Micmac News. And I thought, you know, I, I don't even know if she ever realized that she had these kind of people in her ancestry. And maybe if she did, she would have done more with her photography. Seeing some of those patterns, like my brother worked driving trucks. And there were a whole bunch of people in that side of the family who were uh, delivery people of some sort, um, teamsters, as they said. 
And so it was interesting to kind of see like, how do those patterns play out? But that information isn't as much available for our Mi'kmaq side. And so it all was about hanging out with cousins and getting to know my grandma more and uh, hearing stories about her childhood. She'd grown up in Lenox Island and then uh, left there for Halifax when her and her sister were 13 or 14. They were quite young. But then that was kind of exciting too, because uh, stories that start off with teenagers running away from school <laughs> were very appealing to me as a child. Well, it's funny you say that, stories of kids running away from school, because you're, uh, you're an academic <laughs> now. And I'm curious, so what... First, what kind of sparked your your interest in some of the stuff you've studied, such as feminism and sexuality, but how did you get there from living in a house with your parents in the woods to, to doing this? And if you could also maybe uh, tell me about some of the experts or ideas in the fields that, that influenced you or inspired you. I grew up in an era where we own, our television only got like two channels. Uh, one of them was CBC. And so uh, if you didn't want to watch whatever was on one of those channels, your other options were pretty limited. So I did a lot of reading, a lot of reading outside of what would be normal for a child's age group. And that was useful. My parents were very uh, encouraging of my reading and encouraging of my academics, uh, although they'd had very bad school experiences. They went to Catholic school where like nuns beat them and things. So they were not as academically inclined as they could have been, I think, uh, in different environments, but uh, they were very encouraging for us. And so I remember my mom had taken some extension courses from Mount St. Vincent University, and one of them was about the feminization of poverty. And I remember reading her textbook for the course and finding it really interesting. And the feminism thing, I think, definitely came from my mom because she was very much involved. She worked for Status of Women in Nova Scotia for a while. Um, she did feminist um, work in the community. But also being Mi'kmaq, there's a, a big emphasis on women as sort of the authority figures in the house and in the community. So I grew up with my grandmother sort of, in my mind, being in charge of the family. I remember when she passed, it was a kind of a stressor. I, I messaged my cousin Paula and I said, who's in charge of our family now? Uh, and she had to explain like, well, it's the next oldest woman. And I, it was, uh, it was intriguing to see how different that was from the lives that some of my peers in school had, because I would go to their house and like their dad's telling their mom what to do. And I was like, I don't understand. <laughs> Why is this happening? So I, I think my experience of sexism was a little different, uh, certainly still there, but um, tempered in many ways by uh, a vision of something that could be different. And so I'm very interested growing up in cultural differences and uh, particularly ways that some people were treated poorly. Um, so even within my own family, I've sometimes seen dynamics that I thought were racist or, or based on skin color that I wasn't very happy with. And so there's... Um, there's been a lot of uh, reflection from a young age about uh, how differences shape people's social experiences. And I think that's kind of what got me into the field. And then in terms of who inspired me in the field, really most of my work has been built on Chandler, Lalonde and Hallett. They were some researchers in BC who uh, wanted to find out more about First Nations suicide rates. And so when they lumped everyone together, all the communities, there were these very high suicide rates. But when they broke it down by individual communities, some communities had no suicide at all. And some had enormously high suicide rates that were skewing the, the data. And so when they compared those, they said, uh, 
the thing that is keeping some of these communities very healthy is their engagement with culture. And so they, they develop this concept called cultural continuity. The idea that even if you're having a stressful time and you're in that place where you don't know who you are and what your future will look like, if you know that you're part of a culture that has a future, that can move you through those difficult times. And if you don't feel like you're part of something that has a future, then it's all on you. And so you may be in a situation where it feels like it doesn't matter if you continue to exist tomorrow or not. Connecting that up with Elon Meyer's ideas about minority stress, that bad things happen, it takes some energy to deal with all of the bad, stressful things in your life. And if the stress level goes beyond the resources you have to deal with it, then you see negative health outcomes. Um, so connecting those two up has really been most of what my uh, research career is about, looking to see how does culture keep us well? What kind of well can we be with different cultural engagement? Um, and then how does this work for people who are sexual minorities, for whom sometimes culture isn't as accessible as it might be for other people? In addition to being a bisexual person yourself, you've also done a lot of research on the topic. I was hoping you could tell me more about the academic understanding around bisexuality and how it's evolved through the 90s and early 2000s. And for some context, I, I asked that specifically because I, not even in relation to this, this interview or this podcast, just a week ago, I was watching Seinfeld. And there was an episode in which they were talking about bisexuality and they kind of played it off. Like it was, it was played as a joke, of course. And I get it context of the show. It's, it's a, it's a comedic show, but they, way they talked about it was like, it was something new. And this is like 95, right? So uh, they implied that it was like a new flavor of sexuality or something. So then I was kind of just curious looking it up and I found that there was a, um, Oh, what was it? Some big, uh, some big magazine at the time, I don't remember what it was, but it was like, they also in like 1995 or 1996 featured a person on the front page that said bisexuality, the new flavor or something like that. So I guess that's my question. It's like, there's no way, like this has always existed, but it's funny that in, at least in the West, we're seeing it as something new in 95. So I was curious about that. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, I remember when those, uh, there were a couple of them when the, I remember a cover of Newsweek, I think it was like bisexuality, a new identity or emerges yeah. and it had two people sort of looking at each other with these oh, sexy I heavy saw that books. one yeah um, and yeah so they did treat it as if it had just been invented in the 90s and sometimes people treated us that way in community which was frustrating for me because like as a as a reader and a fan of history uh, I had read quite a lot before I even met another queer person um, so I I knew more about queer history going in than I might otherwise um and it was, it was stressful to see the way that bisexuality was sometimes dismissed as, as if it hadn't always been present, as if we had made no contributions to building queer community. Um, and so the, the pattern that I saw was that in the 1960s, when queer organizing really ramped up, we saw more of an emphasis on sexual freedom. And so bisexual people were included in that. There was a whole range of, of identities and what kind of identity you were didn't seem as salient to your place in community. Just um, not being part of sort of straight society seemed more key. And then as people became more feminist in the late 60s and 70s, um, gay men's communities and queer women's communities started to operate. And so those went off in different directions for many different reasons. And so 
in the 90s, uh, queer women's space was often seen as lesbian space, sometimes lesbian only space. And uh, bisexual women were seen as a threat to that or as people who were stuck in their coming out process. Um, so I remember I, when I was coming out, I had a lot of people, I, I think they were trying to help me. But uh, at the time, I experienced it as really non-helpful and aggressive. But looking back on it, uh, they were trying to help me embrace my lesbian identity, which they thought I had gotten stuck or, or drifted from. And so it was it was a weird time to be a bi activist. Uh, and then pretty soon in the 2000s, trans identity became visible in a huge way. And that changed everything because communities embraced trans eventually in ways they hadn't embraced bisexuality, but that helped bisexuality because once you broke down the gender binary into different uh, components and recognize that some people are genderqueer and some people might shift uh, and that there are different ways to embrace masculinity. And some of those aren't about power and domination over other people. Um, it became a more nuanced and sophisticated conversation. And so I saw a lot less biphobia in the late 2000s as a result of that. Um, you know, a lot of lesbian people had had uh, their partners transition and suddenly found themselves in what other people might read as a straight looking relationship, even though both members in the relationship were queer. And so suddenly those people could understand what I meant when I said two bi people in a relationship together are queer. Uh, that's a queer relationship. Whereas before they, there would be discussions about like, yes, but you've got heterosexual privilege and what does that look like? And so I feel like a lot of the bi acceptance that came in the late 2000s was mostly down to trans activism. I mean, bisexual people have been doing activism too, but to be honest, I didn't really see much of an impact when we did it. You brought up uh, the trans movement right now. They're enduring erasure right now to to an extreme degree. I'm curious, when I was just, you know, briefly researching bisexuality and some of its history, I found that you mentioned, you know, the progression from the 60s and then gay culture, gay communities and lesbian communities um, kind of coming to the to the forefront. And then so I guess the bisexual communities, like you said, it was a binary, right? So it's still like the dominant culture is thinking about something as this is this and this is this rather than being uh, more subjective or or amorphous. Do you think that that's one of the reasons why uh, bisexuality, uh, bisexual communities also endured so much erasure over the last couple decades? Yeah, the lack of certainty in, for other people about like, where do those folks belong? Um, so when I did research with bisexual people who used cannabis frequently, Many of them reported feeling like what they called a sandwich community. It's not really one side or the other. It's sort of in between. And uh, sometimes they felt like there wasn't a bi community at all, that they were just uh, always on the periphery of what was more of a gay or lesbian community. And so I think some of the stressors that bi people were feeling and reporting in the research that I did was definitely related to that sense of being seen as outsiders and maybe sometimes seeing themselves as outsiders, both to straight and queer communities. And I think the people who had some of the most healthy bi identities were often people who had been through those struggles and had to figure out where they fit in relation to other people and had come to a place where they now felt good about what they had uh, concluded about bisexuality, about themselves. But like there was no no guide growing up with these kinds of identities because what you inherited as a bisexual sometimes felt like just 
this overwhelming history of negative uh, experiences that I remember wondering, like, is there any by mentor I could look to who didn't die of a heroin overdose or commit suicide? Like it was a big depressed fest. And so it was a, it was a situation where we didn't have the mentors that we wanted. And so we tried to be the mentors we could be for each other. So I had, uh, when I think about like, who are my bisexual mentors, they're people who went out of their way to build community. Uh, people like Dana Shaw in Toronto, people like Cheryl Dobinson, uh, people like, well, really, uh, everyone who created BIWAT, uh, Bisexual Women of Toronto, Carol Stein um, back in the day, and uh, folks who who put infrastructure in and, and put in more than money, they put in like their time and you know, meeting every week to talk to stressed people, frightened people, sometimes about the same issues week after week. That's a lot of work to do, emotional labor. And, uh, you know, they did it all for free. And so I, I think the fact that there now can be things like national bi organizations and people can be comfortable belonging to bi groups, um, I think that's often down to the work that those people did in that less friendly era. Speaking of important work, there was a study that you did recently I wanted to ask you about. There, So you led a team that developed a, a way to measure microaggressions and microaffirmations experienced by bisexual women. First, I guess for, for listeners at home who might not be familiar with those terms, can you explain what those are? And then tell me what motivated you to do this and how you designed the study. Sure. Um, so microaggression is one of those moments where you feel like, someone has just insulted me a little bit kind of moments where people put you in your place by doing something that denigrates you in some way. Uh, and it's usually fairly subtle, not the sort of thing that you can immediately call people on. It might not even be the sort of thing that you recognize right away, but it accumulates over time and creates stressful uh, feelings and experiences. And then a microaffirmation is the same thing, but in reverse. It's one of those little moments where someone affirms you as a peer that they value, tells you you're okay the way you are, something that's a positive. And so we were, initially, I was mostly interested in the negative. <laughs> uh, but um, my my team said, you know, we we need to look at the positives here too. Like we, we don't want to just do deficit-based research. That's kind of a, a downer. We, we want to we wanna find the joy in the research too. Like what happy things are happening? When are moments that people are um, being supported by each other? And so what we did was we gathered a bunch of bisexual women together because we noticed uh, in the literature when people would describe some of these experiences they had had, they were really gendered. So the way that bi women were treated was very different from the way bi men were treated. Um, it was one of those intersectional elements where the fact that you were uh, gendered in a particular way was part of how they were engaging with you as a bisexual. And so we had uh, brought women together, uh, asked them what kinds of experiences have you had, both positive or negative, uh, related to your bisexuality. And then we collected those uh, focus group discussions and started making a list of the things people had said and combining some of them. Okay, it seems like maybe both of these are related to this, or maybe they're both subcategories of this other thing. Uh, and then Corey Flanders, who was my partner on the project, uh, is a quantitative analyst. And she walked us through how to do the analysis that would show us which questions can we ask in a measure, like a scientific health measure, that will uh, get us the results that are most accurate. 
And so uh, it was a, an interesting process to kind of um, go through the data and measure all of the different elements and how they interacted together. And eventually we created something that, that we shared for free with all of the therapists in the American Psychological Association who work with LGBTQ clients. Because prior to that, there was no way for a client to show their experiences as a bisexual to a therapist. And there was no way for a therapist to assess how much stress or how much uh, support is this bisexual person getting in their life. And so this was something that uh, we were really happy to produce. I, I always meant to go back and do one for men uh, and I just haven't done it yet. Maybe that work could be best done by male scholars, but it I feel like it was a really great project and I loved working with Corey and her team and uh, it was uh, it was done on almost no money. We had a, a grant of 30, I think, oh no, it was $15,000. It was part of the 15K challenge from Women's College Hospital. It was amazing to see how much uh, could be produced with a fairly small grant uh, and I'm still really happy with it. Are there are there experts right now, professionals who are actually utilizing this this measure now? Yeah, uh, we've uh, people have used it in surveys. They've used it in uh, therapy and service, and uh, it's been downloaded, I think, almost a thousand times. Oh, wow. So it's it's uh, nice to see people using it uh, now. Whenever you make something, of course, eventually people will critique it and tell you how it's limited, <laughs> uh, point out all the mistakes you made. Uh, but that's part of the process too. Like you know measures come in to and out of use and that's that's natural as well so i try not yeah. to take it too bad <laughs> <laughs> i want to ask you about your work on gender and sex and how they intersect with mental health and indigenous health that sounds like a simple question but i know it's there's a lot there's a lot there but yeah, that intersection is very important to to parse through well, the work on bisexuals uh, who are women really helped me understand the way that the identities were experienced um, as two things that were happening at the same time. So when I read about intersectional work or intersectionality as a theory, I can visualize in my mind what that experience is like from being uh, an Indigenous woman, because uh, those are two things that sort of come together and then also being a bisexual woman. And so I, I know experientially what they're describing and then translating that into research, um, looking at like, how do you even begin to measure this? Some of the, the work has been about figuring out how do we look at something that is complex without oversimplifying it, without losing the sophistication and the nuances, but also not just seeing them as two pieces that fit together, but more of like a chemical reaction that's um, each thing is being changed by coming together. And so I started off doing bisexual research because I was part of a bi community and I was doing a dissertation and I wanted to do my work with my community in a way that would help. Um, so I was interested in how bisexual women made choices about polyamorous or monogamous relationships and uh, looking at that. And then that got me interested in doing more research with bi community, looking at mental health, particularly cannabis use, because one of the things that came up was uh, how many bi women were reporting cannabis use. I had done a, a fact sheet for Rainbow Health Ontario. They're an organization that provides sort of queer competency uh, workshops for doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals. And so we were creating sort of quick fact sheets for people who were working in the fields of queer health. And one of them was around substance use. And I saw for every substance that I could find data on, 
bisexual women were a big spike in cannabis use uh, compared to say lesbians who were using in many studies cannabis use more comparable with straight women uh, or in some studies slightly more than straight women, but nothing near what bisexual women were using. And I saw this in studies in France, in the UK, in Australia, in Canada, in the US. And as a, a bi community member, I was like, what the heck is up with bisexual women in cannabis? And so I started talking to my friends about it and they were all using cannabis. And so I was like, this is something we need to know about. Um, and so that research got me interested in mental health in a way that uh, I thought I could maybe do something to help our communities and to understand what might be going on. And so what came out of it was that really it's about uh, emotional management, mood management, stress management. And many people were using high rates of cannabis in order to socialize easier in spaces that were biphobic, that they would just care less about the biphobia if they were kind of high. And so when we did the data analysis, we found people who used cannabis had more social connections than people who didn't. Uh, they had more social support. I mean, some of that may be related to effects of cannabis. Like if I'm using cannabis a lot, maybe I'm more likely to say that a friend is supportive than if I weren't. But then there are other ways in which the cannabis use wasn't so helpful. Uh, so a lot, of, a lot of women reported study uh, reported having um, what we would consider sort of a mid-range of depression, chronic depression. And some of that could be related to uh, effects of the cannabis use. But if it's, even if it's not that uh, you have regular depression, if it's just effects of the cannabis use, if you're having it constantly, it's very much like you just are depressed. And so uh, figuring out like, how can we balance things that are helpful uh, while also recognizing there are negative outcomes to some of these choices um, was was a big question for me. And that got me really interested in uh, how health is so specific to individuals and to where they're located and to what their needs are. And that's really all about all those little intersections of who make up who, who makes up who you are and all the things that affect you and your own mental health in a given day. And so thinking about that, reflecting on my own mental health, seeing how it worked for others. Once I felt like I had my feet under me with some bio research, I thought this is this is something I could do for two-spirit people too. Because uh, I had been doing a project with the Center for Addiction and Mental Health and uh, working with some elders there, uh, Elder Blue Waters and uh, an artist, uh, Louis Cruz. And they're both two-spirit. And they were very supportive, but uh, I could tell they weren't that into the project. And so finally I went out for a smoke with them and I said like, so, you know, what's going on? And they said, well, you know, it's nice that you're doing this project, Margaret, but like, it's not really very relevant to us. And I was like, tell me more. So they said, basically like, you're using a, a settler framework for sexuality here that doesn't really reflect our communities. And I thought, okay, interesting. What would it look like if we did it with an indigenous framework? And so that was really a learning curve for me to see like what's an indigenous framework for sexuality and gender look like in Toronto, which isn't my territory. And so it's a different cultural context. And uh, we did the Two-Spirit uh, Mental Health Roundtable, where we talked to Two-Spirit people about what keeps them healthy and what stresses them out. And uh, most of the data came from a round table in Ottawa with the uh, sharp Doppler and uh, the late elder Willie Bruce who supported that project. And it was a, a real mind opener for me because uh, seeing 
the differences in how uh, Indigenous people in that roundtable viewed sexuality compared to how I was encountering it in Toronto. In Toronto, because the population is huge, uh, it was very segmented. You know, you can have an all-lesbian softball team. You don't need to know other people outside of your group to do that. But in Indigenous communities, uh, we don't have the numbers to start breaking the queer community up into segments like that. Um, so everyone is sort of seen as part of the same community of queer Indigenous people, regardless of what kind of queerness you have or uh, whether people think it's too much or not enough. Um, a lot of those identity politics elements didn't seem as relevant. And so I, I saw maybe more flexibility to explore gender and express gender in different ways. And I saw people treating masculinity and femininity differently because what it looks like for normative people, for cis-hetero people, say, in Indigenous communities, is a little different than what it looks like for settlers. So sometimes Indigenous men, for instance, who have long hair will get harassed uh, for gender-related reasons when they're just actually embodying cis-heteronormativity in an Indigenous context. But to a settler, long hair might seem girly. And so, uh, you know, students, Indigenous students get harassed in schools uh, more often about gender than they do about indigeneity. Um, the EGAL study of uh, school violence uh, found that. And so I found that intriguing to see, like, how do we keep our communities healthy? And one of the things that came forward for me was really the difference between two-spirit identity and other types of sexual uh, and gender identity I was familiar with in a settler context. So I started seeing those as very separate frameworks. And uh, that's really where my work has taken me since, looking to see, like, how do these frameworks differ? Did, did you find that uh, cannabis use among two-spirited people was, was, there was also a similar spike in terms of what you found with uh, with bisexual women? Was it there, and, and, and were they kind of both being used in the same context and, and that it was kind of a mental health coping mechanism? like as compared to something that's like recreation use or something? Definitely substance use is a coping mechanism, but not cannabis. Uh, there were other, uh, other studies have found oh, okay. different types of, different types of drugs or substances more prevalent in particular areas. And so uh, like people who do substance work know that uh, some substances come in and out of vogue, particular areas will have high substance use uh, in one area for maybe even several decades, and then sometimes it'll shift. Um, so we do see high substance use rates for two-spirit people, but it's not always cannabis. It's often things like methamphetamine or um, sometimes heroin, other more uh, psychedelics sometimes. Um, and so uh, even smoking, high rates of smoking. So the honor study uh, Karina Walters did, uh, she's a Choctaw scholar who did a big study with two-spirit people, found that if, for the two-spirit people who reflected on their historical loss more frequently, uh, those people were much more likely to smoke. And so I, I look at studies like that, and I think that's terrible news. Like, what's the what's the takeaway from that? Like, don't think about your oppression or it'll make you smoke? Like, that's not good news. <laughs> you know, uh, thinking about our oppression is kind of a big part of trying to do something about it. So uh, it, it, was, it was a way to kind of understand the issues of how substance use relates to mental health, but also like how it's so distinct for each group that uh, it's hard to make generalizations from one project to another. So you alluded to in a previous 
uh, answer prejudice and, and and bias in healthcare and how we think about that, especially here in the West. There's there's a lot of research that they've done in terms of the American healthcare system and how they treat specifically African American people. There's there's been studies up until 2022, I believe, that have documented a lot of this. I'm curious about what you've seen in your research in terms of the Canadian healthcare system and how it treats specifically Indigenous communities. Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> it's really terrible. Participants have reported very negative experiences with almost every healthcare system I've ever asked about. Um, so I remember one participant said that they couldn't talk to their uh, mental health care provider about their life in any depth because if they talked about anything that the healthcare providers considered supernatural or spiritual, then they were worried they were going to get locked up and put on anti-psychiatry meds. And so a lot of people were very concerned about being apprehended by the government and held in facilities that wouldn't let them go. And for a community that has undergone residential schools very recently, um, you know, the last one closed in the 90s, that's not an unreasonable expectation. And so uh, people reported not being tr trusted by their doctors, being assumed to be pain seeking or pain, drug seeking, um, pretending to be in pain, and just people not really understanding the context in which any of their mental health uh, issues had arisen and sort of seeing it as um, individualized rather than understanding how this relates to group identity or group involvement. And so uh, I could relate to that. As an Indigenous woman, I've had terrible experiences in healthcare settings. I uh, I had a I have a recurring knee issue. So uh, my dad has bad knees, my aunt has bad knees, my uncle has bad knees, and now I've got bad knees. Uh, and when it first manifested, I went to a doctor and he reached out and tweaked my knee real bad and hurt it. And I, I was not expecting it. There hadn't been any request or permission given. Um, and... So I was like, what the heck? <laughs> and he didn't really do anything for me. He just said, ah, seems like it might be inflammation. Take some anti-inflammatory over-the-counter medication. I'm like, okay, so I've been doing that now for like six years and it hasn't solved the problem. So like it, it's really discouraging a lot of people from even seeking healthcare. On the upside, it's encouraged a lot of Indigenous people to start becoming their own service providers and to start engaging Indigenous ideas about healing and Indigenous medicines um, and things like that. Um, although sometimes when settlers encounter problems in the medical field, they turn to Indigenous people expecting we have cures for things like cancer. It's not always... Uh, ideal when people become aware that there are other indigenous uh, options for things that uh, the demand could overwhelm and maybe even indigenous people then couldn't get the services that they want um, if settlers are taking them. But yeah, it's, it's been interesting to see how the, uh, the fear of negative experiences has meant that, for instance, a uh, People are not getting um, tap tests or not getting other preventative um, treatments that it, it means that a lot of people are really severely injured or sick before they seek out treatment. And often then treatment can't do much for people if uh, a condition is, is quite severe or um, is, is at the end of its stages. And so there's, there's a lot of negative outcomes that I see in the health field um, from institutionalized racism, uh, personal racism, 
and you know they have made efforts to try to train that out of service providers um but there's a lot of competition for the time of students and in those training programs and so for everything you add you have to ask yourself what are we going to take away what's less important to know um so it's the kinds of things that we do and the kinds of things that we expect people to perform well on when we're training doctors and nurses and other service providers, uh, those processes usually haven't taken Indigenous values into account. They usually haven't asked Indigenous communities or any other uh, other community, what kind of features do you value in a doctor or what, you know, what makes a good nurse in your opinion? And so that's still all very much um, determined by white settler values that's a really good point that i mean the system itself uh, only functions that one way but in, in addition to that a lot of people I, I don't think think about the mistrust that some communities might have toward the toward the healthcare system um, because they see headlines like what we saw last year the there was the indigenous woman who died in hospital quebec and uh, the nurses were calling her racist names and left her unattended and then she died. And that's, that's just one of, of several stories like this that, that I've taken note of in the last couple of years. So there's that level of mistrust, which probably has its own, you know, like we talk about um, being misdiagnosed or not having taking indigenous people seriously, but then there's a whole other side of this that we don't think about and that people aren't, some of these people might not trust going to the doctor and then they're, you know, might be at risk of having more severe outcomes for whatever illness they have, which is very scary to think about. Technology has been helpful that way. So a lot of indigenous people will take their phones with them when they go to the hospital so that they can record everything that happens. Because uh, even in cases where people have been recording, sometimes they've had terrible racist experiences that endangered or ended their lives. Uh, so people have been trying to document it uh, with the technologies that we have or have brought family members in with them or or done other uh, strategies to try to address that fear and those kinds of experiences. Um, so like something I think would be easy to do would be to change how we treat uh, people that we think are intoxicated in a medical setting, regardless of what community they might come from. Because a lot of the stereotypes that are impacting Indigenous people is the stereotype that assumes that we're all intoxicated. Um, and, you know, if if we just gave intoxicated people the same high standard of care we give everyone, uh, I think that would be better all around. Because sometimes, you know, sometimes intoxicated people get hurt and they need help. Uh, so I think those... They're really moral values that people try to enforce in medical settings about human behavior that I think don't belong in a medical setting. And I think we could change that uh, without having to make, expect everyone to be an expert in indigenous behavior or indigenous culture or indigenous values. Um, we could just ask people to be respectful in a more broad way, maybe a universal design approach. I want to shift gears a little bit and uh, talk about diet nutrition here. I'm curious, when did veganism or plant-based eating or plant-centered diets, however you want to refer to it, enter the picture for you? And and how have you navigated that as an indigenous person? Sure. Um, I was an omnivore till about, I think, 2012. Uh, And then we got cats. 
Uh, and my partner and I had moved to Spadina Avenue, which sort of at the corner of uh, Chinatown and Kensington Market. So if you're not familiar with the area, it's a lot of open stall markets, uh, a lot of uh, less produced and uh, uh, processed foods, a lot of raw foods, a lot of foods in their natural state. Um, and so that changed my relationship to food because a lot of the experience that I had had of food growing up was of growing my own food. My parents had a garden. And then suddenly you're living in a regular settler house and going to the grocery store. Um, and at a grocery store, food comes already prepackaged. They've all usually done all the cleaning of the carcass and the butchering of the animal and all of that sort of thing. So some people might not even know what a chicken looks like in its natural state. Um, but what happened for me was uh, around fish. So it was Christmas time and um, my partner's family had traditionally done a fish chowder at Christmas. And I learned the recipe and made it a couple of times. And then I realized, well, I'm, I'm going to have to go and get some fish because I hadn't thought ahead. I got really busy and suddenly Christmas was here and uh, I didn't make the thing. So it, everything was closed. So I went into Chinatown to pick up some fish. And uh, it wasn't filleted. It was just a big fish. And they scraped the scales off it, but then they just gave it to me as is. And so I took it home and I was trying to figure out, like, how do you get the fillets out? And as I was hacking at it with all my blunt knives in my kitchen drawer, I suddenly realized, like, this isn't meant to come apart. Like, it doesn't have fillets I go in and remove. Uh, I'm tearing out its muscles. <laughs> like uh, I suddenly became aware of the biology of the fish in relation to how we usually package the fish. And it just helped me see all of those things more clearly. And it kind of grossed me out. And I thought, you know, this is, th there's something here I'm not really happy about. And so spending more time with the cats and realizing how alive they were and how individual they were, that helped me move toward embracing uh, non-meat uh, diets and then I was, I was getting chubby and I was busy and lazy. And I was like, you know, let's figure out a way to drop some pounds without having to learn anything or do too much. And I thought, well, you know, we'll just, uh, we'll just go vegan for a while and see how that works. Um, and so I read a bunch of things and uh, started making vegan food at home. And uh, I was the main cook in my house. So my partner ate it as well. Um, and then eventually, after like a week, I had the conversation with them. I said, you know, so we've been doing this a week now. And like, are we going to keep doing this? And he said, like, I don't ever want to go back to eating meat. And I was like, all right. So after a month, I checked in again and same thing. And so, uh, yeah, we kind of became accidental vegans for the rest of our lives, maybe. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been a journey because like once I read some vegan theory and reading like, so Carol Adams, for instance, who combines feminism with an analysis of animal oppression, uh, looking at how particularly female animals are treated. It got me thinking about how indigenous values are not embedded in those food processes. So for instance, an indigenous value around motherhood would not separate an animal from her young. Um, and so looking at how, vegan practice and vegan theory can shed light on other things I was doing. Uh, that's been really fruitful for me. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it was easy to be vegan there because uh, there was really cheap and plentiful food. Uh, you know, Buddhism has had lots of vegetarian food for many, many 
years. And uh, so we were, we were in a good place to, to be vegan. We were worried when we moved back to Nova Scotia that maybe it would become a lot harder. Um, but Nova Scotia had changed so much since we'd been away. We left in 97 and came back in 2016. And so we didn't really find that much difficulty getting the foods that we needed here. That's this, this is all very interesting to me. The, the academic thought around how different ideologies look at veganism. I've, we'll, we'll get to it, but I, I, as I was reading through some, some stuff, I realized there's, there's some scholars who say that veganism is, is not ideal for indigenous groups because of X, Y, Z. And then others are like, well, actually, if you think about it from this perspective, from an indigenous perspective or outlook, then, then yes, it is. So it's, it's very, uh, it's variable in terms of how people think about it. But I think that makes it more interesting. I want to ask first though, the biggest, the biggest thing that jumps out, not from like necessarily an academic point of view, but just in general, the uh, like the big criticism that I've seen from this perspective is that, and, and there, and of course there's some truth to it, but in, in many cases, a certain brand of veganism, I suppose, if you're going to go out of your way to get the most organic, f- fresh, uh, all of the, the faux meats that are more expensive or whatever, it's been criticized as something that is expensive and sometimes inaccessible. So if you're living remotely somewhere, it's hard to get some of these things. So if you're thinking about veganism, it's like you have to create the same thing you normally ate, but like a plant-based version rather than just like a whole food plant-based diet, then yeah, I can totally see that. That's the the first bit is being seen as inaccessible and sometimes counterintuitive to indigenous culture. So can you talk to me about cultural authenticity concerns that an indig- indigenous community might have toward the idea of veganism and then those you know financial realities that people have to face when trying to eat this way sure yeah to me it's a bit like a venn diagram so like there are some areas where indigenous practice just overlaps with vegan practice and then there are areas where it doesn't so um for instance the relationship with animals that we most indigenous communities have is really rooted in animals as a food source also as siblings and and other beings in the territory, but uh, it's often through the engagement around food. And so you see animals that are serving as a food source for communities become much more significant in that community's cultural life than animals who don't. And so a lot of stereotypes of indigenous people only look at the hunting and the fishing. They don't, maybe sometimes not even the fishing, uh, they usually stereotype it as sort of meat eating as a sort of primitive masculinity. Um, and so this stereotype of the noble savage um, killing for his breakfast kind of a thing uh, is, is still pretty prevalent. Um, and so a lot of things get ignored or missed uh, with that stereotype. So like all of the uh, intentional plant cultivation that indigenous communities did. Uh, Some indigenous nations had enormous agricultural production uh, and were almost entirely plant-based in some areas. Uh, We're down south where that kind of uh, large-scale agriculture is feasible. But uh, like, for instance, corn is highly significant. Beans are highly significant. And so you do see some of that happen with vegetables in some indigenous nations. And uh, there's been a few indigenous people who have highlighted that history as well. Um, I was interested in how the values get embedded into food practices, um, even food practices that are foisted upon people. So for instance, um, I'm gonna go to an event that uh, will be featuring Luskinigan, which is a Mi'kmaq fry bread. 
fry bread is made with things like flour and sometimes lard. And so uh, it's, it's made with settler products because those were foods that indigenous people were forced to use because they weren't permitted to uh, engage with their traditional food sources in their territories. And so these uh, make-do foods start becoming seen as traditional. And uh, I was interested in how could we shift that back in the other direction and say, what kinds of ways could we engage with food that we have now in ways that would support and uh, embrace our traditional values? And so for me, some of that was veganism, the idea that there are ways to treat other beings that are rooted in who we are as Indigenous people that I think overlap nicely with vegan ethics. There are other places where it doesn't overlap so much, but um, I think the stereotype of vegans as always getting the whole food organic, yeah, there are lots of vegans who live that way. Um, It's very expensive and uh, it's not great for the environment. So, you know, that avocado that (laughs) might be great to add to my salad, um, if that's being produced by exploited workers who've been taken off their own traditional territories and forced to do work in other people's territories as migrants or refugees, uh, if that produce has been trucked across the continent in order to be fresh at my table, that's not great for the environment. So thinking about like all of the values and how that's shaping how you eat. So maybe the most overlap I might see between vegan and indigenous values might be uh, like a local locavore kind of veganism where people are more about what can you produce in our actual local catchment area that can be consumed. Um, And so sometimes you see foragers who really get into that. I know Toronto has a lot of urban foragers who look for food sources in a, a city space. And I thought for indigenous people living in urban areas, which is half our indigenous population, uh, ways to engage with food that are traditional, that don't involve being out on the land and hunting and fishing and that sort of thing. Um, we need those because that's the future of our communities. Uh, if we're going to live in cities, we need to be able to be ourselves in cities. And that food is a huge part of that. Uh, you can see how indigenous cultures change as they start adopting settler food practices. And it's usually not positive. It's usually resulting in a lot of health problems. So uh, for me, it was about like the the mental and health well-being aspect, as well as the promotion of vegan food or anything like that. One thing that, that you just said that was really interesting to me was when you're talking about like how the food is produced, where it's trucked and everything, uh, you mentioned the workers, people working for for little to no money in another country and then of course the carbon emissions it takes to get the avocado from one country to the next just to be put on one person's salad so i think a lot of plant-based eaters or or vegan eaters especially in the west american canada will think of uh veganism more of like a plant versus animal type thing to produce animals for consumption. There's factory farming, all the CO2 that comes from that. uh, It's more than all of the transportation combined. They'll use those stats. Those are the stats that they look at. Those are, those are, those are credible, you know, things to to criticize, but then it's uh, there's the whole idea where it's like, yeah, like if you're going to eat a uh, animal that's on a farm, just a couple miles that way, it's local. That's great. And, And, and versus, shipping the avocado in so where do the it's always the emissions you know what is the climate the effect on the climate rather than then okay well 
um, that came from a farm down the street that's not a factory farm, but then this actually came from a, a massive production somewhere in South America where they're they're mistreating their employees. So there's so many different ways to to think about it that a lot of people aren't really incorporating that that lens here, I think, which is a really, and I guess this plays into my next question is like, I've also in my reading of, of criticism of, of plant-based diets or veganism, or at least the way we think about it, a lot of people have criticized it as a, they've seen it through a lens of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and I'm curious from your perspective, if you, if you see that there's, there's like a valid criticism or at least like a through line there that you can pinpoint. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so white settlers have a lot of history that they might feel guilty about. And so for some people, embracing veganism could be part of a, what some scholars call like a, a flight to innocence, uh, a way that they can live that helps alleviate some of those guilt feelings uh, related to many, many uh, uh, things. Um, but there are some vegans who forget people are animals too and don't really care about the experience of uh, oppressed farm workers or anything like that, uh, or don't maybe are dehumanizing people who work in the meat industry um, and don't realize the negative impact that the meat industry might be having on those people as well. Um, And I think there can be a lot of energy when people first embrace an idea. And so sometimes there's a new vegan uh, enthusiasm that can overwhelm other concerns. Um, But to try to live an ethical life in the long term, uh, you're constantly making choices. And sometimes the choices aren't between a good thing and a bad thing. They're between two good things or sometimes two not so great things. Uh, what's the lesser of two evils? Um, and, and so issues of like footwear. So uh, I bought a pair of uh, leather shoes uh, when I was in my master's project about a decade before I went vegan. Um, and they are still wearable and usable today. Do I go out and wear the shoes and be that vegan with the leather shoes person and worry about how people are reading me and all of those things? What's my responsibility to the shoes because this is an animal's body? Uh, do I bury these shoes? Do I do ceremony with the shoes? Like, how do I, what is my relationship to the animal whose body made these shoes and how do I honor that? I don't know that purchasing easily breakable petroleum-based shoes is necessarily the right solution either. And so like the question for me always comes up, like how do we make these decisions and what kind of values are we engaging with these? Uh, And so for, for me, I looked at my shoes and I thought, well, you have them now. And so you've initiated a relationship with these shoes and the animal whose body made them. And uh, I feel a responsibility to that animal to caretake those shoes Uh, Sometimes that might mean I end up wearing them. Usually they sit in my closet. But uh, I also think about like, what's the ethics of going out and purchasing new things if I already have something that suffices? Um, Migma values around, it's about avoiding not having enough rather than accumulating. And so if something is totally serviceable, um, it's not really a Migma value to go out and replace it with some shiny new thing. And so... Uh, it's often a struggle because uh, just the right thing to do in a Mi'kmaq assessment might not be the right thing to do in a vegan assessment. And so like they're, they're really different ethical frameworks, but the work I've done is pointed out the ways in those, which those frameworks overlap. I mean, they're not going to overlap all the time. 
and other vegans would be like, yeah, you should have buried those shoes in a funeral and you should feel bad about wearing them now because people see them and you're promoting uh, leather wear and people think vegans are hip hypocrites then. And so I, I totally understand it. I feel that way about fur, <laughs> but uh, sometimes I don't feel that way about leather. And so it's all, and it's a journey. Like, you know, I may feel differently in 10 years, but um, it's, it's difficult because you can't always go to other vegans and say, you know, I'm struggling with this question about my Mi'kmaq value. <laughs> it's just like, they're not going to know. Uh, and it, if I go to other Mi'kmaq people, they might say, yeah, well, you know, have some moose meat. <laughs> you know, you need to get back with your culture. Uh, and it's about the meat and the fish. Um, whereas for me, it's about like the relationship to the, the territory and the animals and the other beings in it. You know, being a good person is, is hard. Figuring out how to do that is a lifelong journey. And so, I try to not be too hard on myself, but it's nice that my partner just very uh, steadfast. He's going to be vegan for the rest of his life. And that, that helps because I don't have to worry. I've had people say things like, like assume that I made him this way, that I forced him to eat these things that he was eating secretly behind my back. Or like, there's a whole bunch of gendered things that came out. And I was like, wow, this is, this is not uh, how it is. <laughs> it affects everybody differently. Everybody's in a different point and reflection period in, in their life. And it's hard to be so absolutist about it, you know? And I think that's one of the criticism, criticisms of some vegans or some vegan communities too, is that it's mm -hmm. like, it's this or the highway. And it yeah, really, there could be and, a fundamentalism to it sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, spe well, speaking of that, I've heard you, it was in an article I was reading about the the food guide, the Canadian food guide, uh, when they when they changed it, and uh, you know, after they took out the the funding from the dairy and the pork industry, it turns out that scientifically that people should be eating more of a plant based or Mediterranean diet. You did an you did a, an article with I think it was CBC on that, and you mentioned uh, you know how that would that from from a from an indigenous lens how how that would be seen. You mentioned that some people choose explicitly vegan diet versus a diet based on indigenous values. And mm. if you think about whatever, wherever you're from, those values, if you think about those values specifically removed from the specific diet, then uh, you can land on, yes, eating more of a plant-based diet aligns with these, these values. I'm curious if you can speak about whether you think coming to this from that perspective might might be applicable to more people rather than than labeling it a, a vegan diet. Yeah, I think uh, if people have an opportunity to eat some of the food that a vegan diet might include, um, then they're much more open to doing so again in the future. So uh, like those uh, go vegan for a week or go vegan for a month programs, uh, those programs work because of how human brains make decisions. We don't consider all the options and then choose the best one. Uh, we convince ourselves that we have, but that's not how it actually plays out. Uh, what we do is we make an emotional decision and then we uh, come up with logical reasons that support what we already plan to do. And so people are shifted in their ethics primarily through their emotions. Um, and I think that is one of the reasons that a lot of vegan activism appeals to people's emotions, guilt, fear, um, compassion. And so getting people to just eat the vegan food for a while 
uh, can reveal to them the ways in which their life is maybe um, shaped by values that perhaps they might not have chosen to embrace, but that are just the default values that are embedded in the food system. And I think it's, it's helpful for people to realize that, that vegan food isn't some sort of weird plastic thing. Uh, my diet as an omnivore was extremely boring and repetitive. Uh, I mean, I, I was poor, but uh, it was also like, it was the same 10 meals that I had eaten most of my life. Uh, and when I became vegan, it wasn't just those same 10 meals without dairy and meat now, uh, we ate all kinds of new things. And so for me, it was an opportunity to explore new foods and try things I'd never had before and discover new things I loved. Why had I not been eating hummus? <laughs> like, that, that was amazing. Uh, like all kinds of things. And realizing that a lot of the foods that people sometimes made jokes about as if they were not good to eat, like say lentils, uh, turned out to be things I really enjoyed. And so I think that experience can show a lot of people that uh, it's not so scary. And so I think if you engage people in the activity of doing it differently, then they come up with their own reasons for continuing to do so. You've, you've also written about, and you, and you kind of mentioned this earlier on too, you, you've, you, uh, you've written about an indigenous outlook of animals as siblings to humanity rather than, you know, the, the colonial outlook and how we practice things today, which is kind of dominion over those animals, a dominion over the land used specifically as a form of consumption rather than the animals being part of the environment that you are also a part of. Can you distill this difference of thinking? I mean, you mentioned the, the settler thinking in, in before, but uh, why it's still so prevalent today. And then do you see this as a way to possibly decolonize our food system or at least the way that we think about it absolutely uh, a lot of the ways that we run settler food systems are really based in christianity uh secular atheist people involved in those food systems might not realize it but um a lot of the things that we do are based in an idea that the human being is uh, distinct from other animals, better than other animals, more godlike than other animals. And all of that kind of thinking emerges from the Christian tradition. An indigenous approach, um, for particularly a, a Mi'kmaq approach, the one I'm most familiar with, sees other animals as more like human beings. That the human being is part of a network of other beings. And if we were in some kind of pyramid or chain, we wouldn't be at the top. Lots of things eat human beings. Um, in fact, being consumed uh, at a cellular level happens to us all the time and is part of the human evolutionary and birthing processes. Uh, like, for instance, the reason that our fingers are separated is because the cells that are holding them together die in utero and separate our fingers. So cell death is part of cell life. And so Indigenous worldviews tend to look at all the connections more than categories, whereas uh, Christian uh, Europe tended to see uh, people as at the top of a big, long uh, chain with animals at the bottom and uh, people from outside of Europe, maybe somewhere in the middle, <laughs> uh, is more like animals than, than the Europeans. And so looking at that as an Indigenous person, I'm like, well, this seems racist and messed up. So like, what else, what other ways are there of thinking about this? 
And so one of the things I liked about it was the idea that um, humans are on equal footing with other animals and that it opens an opportunity for other animals to teach us things and for us to um, work with other animals in ways that are egalitarian rather than dominating. Now, the sibling image uh, also, I think, works for the fact that we're, we're not always great to other animals, even as Indigenous people. Like, you know, sometimes I might treat my siblings really shoddily. <laughs> uh, and so there, there's a space for recognizing that we don't always do the right thing. But there's also a space for um, realizing that we can heal from that and that uh, mistreating others is usually rooted in our own pain. And so I think having that perspective coming from Mi'kmaq ways of being and knowing, um, I find that is helpful for understanding other ways of relating to animals. And I think the, the settler approaches to food um, they're they're really based in that experience of European starvation, that uh, gnawing fear that you're not going to have enough to eat and to feed your children. Uh, Europe was starving when they started going to other places to colonize. Part of the problem was they felt they had too many people, too many of as they saw the wrong sorts of people, and so they sent all of those poor people out to other places in an attempt to um, preserve the culture that they had built in Europe. Uh, and so they they really exported some of those problems. And that's uh, something I think is very visible in the food industries that we still have. Those assumptions about power, assumptions about uh, animals just being ours to use, um, all of that stems from really the religious inheritance uh, and the economics of Europe in that uh, colonial period. To kind of wrap things up, uh, do you have any advice for people listening who might feel inspired to start thinking more critically about their food choices? And then are there any grassroots groups or programs you'd like to mention that are bringing attention to things like this or food sovereignty or food justice? Oh, uh, advice. Yeah. Um, well, I think people can do the same thing that I did. Uh, take a look at your own cultural background and see what are some of the values that your people traditionally had in relation to other animals, in relation to food, now, this might not always be explicit. Sometimes you have to look at the practice and say, what kind of values do I think might be expressed there? Uh, people don't always talk about their values, but they'll often uh, live their values. And so looking at a practice and saying, what kind of principles do I see at work there? Uh, doing that thinking can be really useful. So I um, met a scholar who's South Asian. And uh, he did the same thing with his cultural identity and background and food experiences that I had done with mine. And so we could compare that, like uh, their history of colonialism, uh, British colonialism particularly, looking at uh, how that shaped the kinds of foods people produced, uh, the kinds of foods people ate, how they fed their families, what kind of uh, foods people grew up uh, loving and associating with love and safety. So uh, doing that work with your own background is, is vital, I think. And a lot of settlers particularly uh, don't realize they have a background. They just see whiteness as this big amorphous thing and uh, they don't see the distinctions in it. And so I think if you go back far enough, um, many of those later colonizing groups uh, were first colonized themselves in some way. So for instance, uh, you know, French folks came over here and did some colonizing. Um, but before that, they colonized French 
counties, forcing them to speak a unified version of French and suppressing French dialects. So like a lot of that behavior, um, I would consider it like trauma reenacted in new places. Um, and so I think some of the things that are maybe puzzling about some of our food practices become clearer if we know them in their historical context. Uh, you asked about uh, things to recommend. Oh, I think yes. Sorry. like this, there are lots of places all over the uh, world where people are talking about food. Food is a big issue. And the pandemic really revealed how quickly our food systems can break down. And um, I think it, there's a, a new movement uh, that is really an old movement about being able to take food production back into your own hands. And so, you know, Victory Garden style uh, home farming is urban farming even is becoming more prevalent. And so I think there's a, an, a renewed interest in this sort of thing and uh, people are connecting it to climate change. So I, I think any opportunity to think through this further with uh, like minded people is a good one. Margaret, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you today. Uh, I always learn a lot in these podcasts, but I really feel like I learned a lot in this one. Thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Oh, thanks, Clint. I appreciate you having me here. This podcast featured royalty-free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guests for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website, www.plantbasedcanada.org, and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org, and our Plant-Based Canada YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.